I'll be reading from Ephesians 1 again. You know, every four years in our country, we have elections. In the great wisdom of our founding fathers, they have established a procedure by which someone who has been elected can be unelected, can be kicked out of their office, can be kicked off the team. God's election is not like that. His election is sovereign in its purpose and its intent. In 1 Timothy 2, where we will be returning in a few weeks, Paul states that he wants the church to pray for all people because God wants all people to be saved. Last week we saw that Paul was not trying to undo his prior teachings on election and predestination by saying, oh no, no, wait, I changed my mind. God actually desires and wills that all people will be saved. That's not what Paul is doing here. But he's showing that the gospel is for everyone, for all kinds of people. Today we continue to look at the biblical doctrine of election. And I will hopefully show you that election, far from something to be misunderstood or embarrassed about, is an incredibly beautiful reflection of God's love for His church, showing His amazing grace. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, preserved by the Holy Spirit for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to Him, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Precious Holy Spirit, we ask that You would open our eyes, unstop our ears, and soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last week we talked about six things that uh, I believe Joel Beakey pointed out that we learn about election in our text. We only went through three of them. We saw that election reflects God's love. In love, He predestined us. Election reflects God's covenant, the covenant of redemption between the Father who elected us 
the Son who came and accomplished the work, and the Spirit who regenerates us. And election unites us to Christ. We're united to Christ in a mysterious and yet very real way in this life. So today we're going to look at three further points that election is actually God selecting individual people. It seems obvious, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to see, secondly, that election shows God's sovereignty over all things, not just salvation. And thirdly, election is the root of our holiness. I believe that we should all know what the Bible teaches about election. We should all understand it and love this doctrine. It's clearly taught in Scripture. It's rejected by our culture. So hopefully this equips you to be able to talk about it uh, if the topic comes up. As Presbyterians, this is really the first thing people think of when you tell them you go to a Presbyterian church. If they're familiar at all, they go straight to election. Oh, you're one of those people. There's obviously misunderstanding there, and hopefully this equips you to speak truth in love. So we see that, first of all, election is actually God choosing individuals for salvation. Individual people. Verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Remember in Acts it says that those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. Those people, those individuals. So this first point may seem obvious, but it is important to think and to know that election is not primarily about a process that God has established. It's not primarily about how God intends to save people or a process to save people. Election is about God actually saving individuals. People with names. Before the creation of the world, God chose a particular people. He named each one of them. And He chose them for Himself. We were predestined for adoption as sons and daughters. These are individuals who have been elected. Is this in the Bible? It's all over the Bible. You remember when Cain killed Abel? Do you know what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 4.25? Eve said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. A particular person to carry on the line, the godly line. It also makes me value the genealogies of the Bible as well. When you, if you're tempted like I am, when you reach a genealogy, when you see the names and this person begat this person, sometimes your mind kind of turns off. And I want you to turn your mind on in that moment. And remember that each one of those names is a person just like you. A person that lives and breathes and had a life and a family and struggles and walked through this wilderness. God shows His love and care for individual people by preserving their names, among other reasons, but by preserving their names for us. 
So his saving love isn't something that just makes salvation possible. His saving love, his sending of his son, actually accomplishes the work. The Holy Spirit regenerates those whom Christ died for. It's a specific people. Christ came on a specific mission to save a people that the Father had given him. People with names. People who had been elect of the Father. And he says that none of those whom he came to save would be lost. Each one was known by God. Each one was elect by God. Each one was chosen before the foundation of the world by name. So whenever you see a reference to election or predestination in the Bible, you need to remember this isn't only a doctrine. This is a God, a personal God, showing a personal commitment to a particular people, each one with names. And if you have faith in Christ, that's you. That's you. I began to read a, a book that I've read largely in the past, but it's a book by William Ames. And he writes, he's an old Puritan, amazing author. He wrote that theology is the doctrine of living to God. So when he wrote that, it was kind of groundbreaking. Theology was thought to be this kind of wooden academic discipline. And Ames said, no, 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 no. Theology is the doctrine of living to God. There's no knowledge about God that doesn't drive you to worship. And election probably being one of the highest doctrines that drives our hearts to worship. Why? Because we know that God has elected us personally for salvation. We know the depravity of our hearts and we know how little we deserve it. Not just how little, we don't deserve any of His love. So what favor has been shown to those of you who have faith in Christ? What grace has been granted to you? You're unlike anyone else on the earth. In Luke 18.7, Jesus says, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will God delay long over them? I tell you, He will give them justice speedily. Does God bring justice on the earth? Absolutely. But for His children, His chosen ones, it's speedily. Paul in Romans 8 famously says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, you're safe. You're safe from any condemnation. You're safe from any harm apart from His will. Your loving Father preserves you. The knowledge of your personal election will be reflected in a desire to live for God every day as well. Ames is right. This doctrine actually produces a life toward God, as all true doctrines should. A desire to live for God every moment of every day in conversation, in decisions, in interactions, in our thoughts. He elected you to salvation, and it's personal, and it should be felt and seen personally. So, rather than avoiding this doctrine... I'm challenging you to embrace what the Scripture teaches and then think about how it actually applies to you. Because if you're like every one of us, you look inside and you know it's all grace. You deserve nothing of what He's given you.
In Mark 13.27, Jesus says that the angels will gather His elect from the four winds of the earth to the ends of heaven. This gives us great confidence in life. This doctrine changes everything if you understand God's sovereignty, if you understand His love. If you understand salvation, you understand this doctrine as well. He's saving individuals just like you, just like me, who deserve nothing. And it's overwhelming. Secondly, let's look at how election shows really God's sovereignty over all things. Yes, He's sovereign over salvation, but that's a subset of His sovereignty in general, isn't it? Paul says this in verse 11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Election is just one part of His sovereign and kingly rule over His universe, over His creation. Nothing happens in all of history or all of the future that's somehow apart from God's plan or unexpected. It's all certain. You see how this is a great comfort to the people of God, how it's a comfort to you. Just in life, first overall sovereignty of God is a comfort in life. Does anyone else work all of their things according to their own will? I mean, we all want to do that. But only God works all things according to the counsel of His will. How is this a comfort in life, you might ask? You've heard it before. The Heidelberg Catechism, I believe, says it well. Speaking of providence, God's election, God's sovereignty. They write, it's the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Because we know that nothing is random in the Christian life, we have confidence that our Father is caring for us, even in difficult times. And we can be thankful when things go well, because we know that everything good is from our Father. God's sovereignty is a comfort in our lives. But more than just a general comfort, it's a comfort. God's sovereignty in election is a comfort in the Christian life. Your salvation from start to finish is in God's hands. Praise God. If it were not, none of us would be saved. We would all fall away. From beginning to end, God saves. Election, of course, is so wonderful because we understand how completely depraved we are. Totally depraved. No good in us before He has saved us. But once you see this, you see just how rock solid is the salvation that has been purchased for you. It's solid. When you are tempted to despair, you're fighting the sin within, you can be confident that He who began this good work will carry it on to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. Period. For those of you who have faith in Christ. You're not getting kicked off the team. There's too much that's been invested. 
When the U.S. Air Force trains a fighter pilot, it's a long process. Three years of training. It's a long time. It starts with just basic officer training. You learn for two to four years just how to be an officer, what's expected of you. Then you have some light aircraft training. Just can you walk and chew gum at the same time and maybe take off and maybe land and not hurt anyone, not damage anything. Then if you make it through that, you go to basic pilot training. And this is a whole year of just rigorous training. The whole base is geared to train pilots. The entire base exists for that one reason. And then if you make it through that and you get your wings, then you go on to your specific fighter aircraft training, which is another year. Again, a whole base. The whole purpose of that whole base is just to train new fighter pilots. And at the end of that training, the sum of the cost of that training is three years, of course, three years of investment in the, that person, that individual, and somewhere between, between 10 and $15 million. So once you're completed with training, once that is over, there's kind of a little bit of assurance that unless I really mess this up, they're not going to kick me off the team. It's, it's too hard to train another guy to do what I do now. The investment in time and resources makes every fighter pilot a valuable resource. And there's, there's not that many of them. There's just a very small number. So on the good side, you really do have a good quality product as a taxpayer, but on the flip side, there's a couple of real nignogs that get to stay in that career field just because it's too expensive to retrain someone else. And as long as a guy is trainable and he's sorry for his mistakes, he's probably going to be allowed to stay. They're not going to kick him off the team. Well, I say all that just to show you that in our salvation, even more so. The price to bring you to the family of God was greater than anything you can imagine. The time that it has been planned was from before the foundation of the world. You have been purchased with a price. He elected you before the world. Then He called you. He's justified you. He's adopted you. He's given you faith and repentance. He sanctified you and He will glorify you. So He doesn't call us to be perfect. Yes, we strive for holiness. But He calls us to trust in the One who is perfect. We've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Not because we were righteous or good. We were chosen as dead and rebellious and hopeless sinners. And He doesn't require anything of us that He hasn't already accomplished in His Son. He paid everything. He, Jesus has paid it all. And all to Him I owe. This righteousness once imputed to you can never be changed. Once you are justified, you are justified once and for all. It's a declaration. And this is a logical result of understanding God's sovereignty and election. If you know what is going on, what the Scripture teaches, you know that you will persevere. It's a gift that will never be taken away. So in your Christian life, when you fail to meet God's standard, when you know that you're struggling, if you have faith in Christ, 
you know that that investment in your adoption is too costly. God's own honor, His word, His promises are bound up in your salvation, and He will not deny Himself. So this truth, the truth of the certainty of God's salvation for the elect, it leads us to the final point, and that's election is the root of our holiness. Look at verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So God elects individuals. Election is part of God's greater sovereignty. And now we see that election is the root of holiness. Don't you see He's elected you, He's predestined you for something much grander than just your own personal salvation. Your life will glorify God as you are sanctified, as He produces holiness in you. Holiness in life. Rejection of the world. A pursuit of God. And the Greek in this sentence is not communicating your obligation to be holy. It's communicating God's will to make you holy. It's God's purpose. Before you're regenerated, there's no difference in you or anyone else from an outward perspective. No one knows. You're dead in your sins like everyone else. But once the Holy Spirit changes you, there's a change. Everyone knows a Christian when they see one. You'll know someone who is elect because you'll see their lives and their lives are different. How they actively run from the world and worldliness and they put away their Foibles in their pursuits, the pursuits of the world, their secret gardens of sin, their idolatry, their obsessions. And they run to Jesus. In thought, word, indeed, the elect of God run to God. They're objectively holy, once and for all holy because of Christ, but they also become more holy in their daily lives. They're diligent in prayer and study. They're faithful to lead their families. What they say with their mouths is changing too. You don't hear coarse talk or rudeness or complaining or gossip or deceit. You don't hear talk primarily about the world's pleasures and entertainments and passions. Rather, you hear words that lift up a soul to Christ. You hear holiness and truth and godliness and joy. You speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You have a heart of thanksgiving for God. And it comes out of your mouth. And you might be thinking right now, oh, I don't actually do that well. I struggle with that, Pastor. How do I improve my life? How do I get better? How do I conform my thoughts, words, and deeds to God's standard? My heart tells me that I should do that, but I know that I fail often. How can I conquer sin? It's a hard question. Ian Hamilton was, he's going to be at the conference next week. I'm excited to see him again. But Ian Hamilton was asked by a young man in his church who was struggling with a pornography addiction that he had just, he was almost suicidal. He hated himself so badly because he couldn't stop. And the boy came to Ian and said, what should I do? What program can you give me? What book can you recommend? What do I do? And Ian said, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
For all of us, our sanctification is based on Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus if you hate your sin. If you see the jealousy or the bitterness in your heart, the anxiety, if you see your addictions to all kinds of worldliness, television, smartphone, social media, if you see your pride and you're just repulsed by it and you don't know what to do, if your mouth is out of control, whatever it is, you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Those who are elect, will be made holy. God will sanctify them. You will not ever stay static. You will always be moving. The elect of God move toward their Savior. And this also answers the antinomian objection that, well, if God's elected you, well, it just doesn't matter what I do. I mean, I'm elect. I believe in Jesus. So my life is really secondary. That reflects the thoughts of an ignorant and unsaved person. Because those who are elect of God will not have those thoughts. They can only desire to abide in Christ. They only desire to serve Jesus Christ. Our holiness in life and our godliness before the world and our spiritual pursuit of the Father in our prayer and our study, it's all a product of our election. It's all a product of what God has done. The cycle in life is something like this. God elects you. He regenerates you. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You see your sin. He sanctifies you. You remember your election. You remember what He's done for you. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You see your sin and remember what He's done for you. And in that process... He makes you holy. In conclusion, I just want to say God will not fail. He will not fail. Election, yes, is about individual people whom God has saved. And they're sinners. It's a reflection of God's sovereignty and it does push us to holiness. But in the midst of our lives, we sometimes think that it might not work out for me. God will preserve His remnant, I tell you this. A remnant is just a piece that's left over from a larger portion. A remnant of a people is something God has always preserved for Himself. Remember the flood? All the wickedness of the earth. God could not even think of these people except to destroy them. He preserved a remnant. He preserved Noah and his wife and his family. You remember when Elijah thought he was the only person that served God on the entire planet? What did God say? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Indeed, the church is today the remnant chosen by God. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many will find the way to eternal destruction, but few will find the way to eternal life, Jesus said. God will not fail. And His doctrine of election isn't barring anyone from coming to Christ at all. Like Calvin said, how do you know if you're elect? You have faith in Jesus Christ. You repent and believe. Our responsibility is to look to Christ, to rest on what He's done. What He did on the cross for our salvation. What He did in His perfect life, His death and His resurrection. To trust in Him alone. To believe on Him. Election then is only a great comfort for those of us 
who know the truth of the Scriptures. But we're all called to pursue Jesus Christ. This brings us to a time of the Lord's Supper. This table is not just for members of this church. This is the table of Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Christ this morning, you are welcome to come and partake of the bread and the wine. If you're a member of an evangelical church in good standing, you are welcome to come. The words of institution come from the book of 1 Corinthians 11. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He took the bread, and after having given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner after, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us pray. Our good and great God, we thank You. We thank You in Jesus' name that You have called us to Yourself. You have elected us, predestined us for adoption as sons. And it's not because of anything that You saw in us. But it is only by Your grace that we approach You. It is only by Your grace that we have hope to meet You at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray that You would lift our eyes from these visible elements of bread and wine and turn our eyes to heaven. Turn our eyes to the work of Jesus Christ. Yes, we remember our sin. Yes, we know that we are not worthy to partake of any meal with You. And yet, Christ makes us worthy by His work. So in remembrance of Jesus Christ, but also in expectation that You will meet us that You will touch our hearts, that we will be spiritually blessed. We come to this table thankful and brotherly love that we as Your family can partake together. In Jesus' name, Amen.